Amen. If you would find in your Bible the book of Matthew chapter 26, and I know this comes as a big surprise for you, but uh, I am not a person who enjoys being complimented uh, or enjoys people being nice to me. I don't want you to be mean to me, just just leave me be. And uh, But because of that, I don't always do a good job of giving compliments. And uh, it's something I struggle with as a husband and a father. And I'm working very hard at that. And uh, so he loves it as much as I do. But uh, I just want to take a minute and thank Jamie. And uh, you can step out if you want. You don't have to. You can take it for what it's worth. But uh, most, some of you remember in 2003 when the last music administration got mad and took their ball and went home. Uh, Jamie stepped up. And uh, your wheels are turning a little bit. That's okay. Uh, Jamie, a 20, he's a lot younger than he is now, 25-year-old man, and a uh, 17 or 18-year-old uh, Marlene Kunico on the piano uh, took over the music at this church. And if you're doing the math, uh, uh, 20 years ago, uh, with the exception of a few months when you tried to hire someone and didn't stay and you went back to Jamie, that made you feel good, right? No, I'm just kidding. Uh, Jamie is closing in on 20 years leading the music here, and I'm trying to get all those specific dates down. Amen. And uh, and so uh, hopefully early next year when we figure out how many months and all that, we can do something to honor him. Too bad. If I've got to do it, you got to do it. And... Uh, but I just hope that you will uh, thank him for what he does. Uh, he is a blessing. And talking to a lot of pastors that have terrible music or have boy band musicians, uh, we are very blessed. Very, very blessed. And we're blessed with our musicians. And, uh, you know, it's just a blessing. It's a blessing to be able to come in and to worship in spirit and in truth and from the bottom of my heart, Jamie, thank you for not wearing skinny jeans. I appreciate it more than, more than you will ever know. But, uh, uh, but I mean it from all sincerity. Thank you, Jamie. And uh, uh, I could not do what I do without him first preparing the way. And so I just want to thank you for that. And uh, hopefully we can do something more in the time past, or as the time comes. But... Uh, now that that's out of the way, whew, uh, perfection looks like this is the title of the sermon tonight. And we are in Matthew chapter 26, and we are looking at one of the most lopsided trials in human history. We are looking at the uh, first religious trial of Jesus, a situation that he has been betrayed, he has been lied about, uh, he has been taken into captivity uh, by his uh, detainers, and they are getting ready to have a trial. The Sanhedrin was made up of 71 individuals. And to give you a thought about how tilted this trial was, Nicodemus had come to Jesus in chapter 3 and said, We know you are a teacher of the law. And so there was at least one more person who was thinking about Jesus. Let's just say, for statistics' sake, there were three Pharisees who were sympathetic that Jesus could be the Son of God. 
I want to put this in perspective to how lopsided this would have been. In 2020, in Washington, D.C., 340,000 people voted. Less than 5% voted for a Republican. And so when you see on the news that every liberal wants to have a trial in Washington, D.C., it is because they know there are no Republicans there. When they have a trial, when they have a jury, they know everyone's going to think like them. And the outcome will be exactly what they want it to be. Conservatives do the same thing. They file petitions in Texas and Florida, Mississippi, Arkansas, Alabama. Why? Because people are more inclined to think the same way they do. And so when you think about that, less than 5%, if just two or three Pharisees thought, maybe Jesus has some truth. Maybe Jesus is not who they're portraying Him to be. That is the idea behind this trial. Yet even though this trial was lopsided, the verdict had already been established, the players had already put, put into position, we see that Jesus was perfect. He was perfect in every way in His response to these individuals. What I can tell you is, if I was falsely detained, falsely accused, falsely slandered, falsely imprisoned, I would not be perfect. I know that for a simple fact because I can watch how angry I get when someone cuts me off in traffic. When someone does something that I don't like, I can see my own flesh come out. But tonight as we look at this trial, I hope that you will see that even though Satan meant it for evil, these men meant it for evil. All of the individuals that hated Jesus were the same people that not only convicted Him, but sentenced Him. In all of this anger and hatred and betrayal, that God still had a purpose. God still had something He was trying to accomplish. And so tonight I hope that you will really begin to think in your own life, in your own marriage, in your own relationships, that even what others have meant for evil, and even what others have meant to use to hurt you, that God still has a plan. That God has not forgotten you. As First Peter says, that we are to cast all our cares upon the Lord. Not just some of them, but all of them. And so tonight, if you would pray with me, we will begin. Father, I just come to you tonight thankful for who you are. Thank you for the privilege to worship. And Lord, tonight I just pray that you would speak, that you would move, that you would work. Lord, tonight I don't deserve the privilege to speak to this congregation. Lord, I don't deserve the privilege to represent you tonight. But Lord, I pray that you would speak. Lord, that you would work, that you would move. Lord, that your word would do what it always does, accomplish its purpose and pierce to the heart. And so, Lord, I ask it all tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're taking notes tonight, and I hope that you will, we see that Jesus is falsely accused. Starting there in verse 57, as we're going verse by verse, and those who had laid hold of Jesus led him, to way, led him away to Caiaphas the high priest, 
where the scribes and the elders were assembled. But Peter followed him at a distance to the high priest's courtyard, and he went in and sat with the servants to see the end. Now the chief priests, the elders, and the council sought false testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. Even though many false witnesses came forward, they found none. But at last, two false witnesses came forward and said, This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. I want to show you some things about this trial. We begin to see here that he is led to Caiaphas' house. We know that the Sanhedrin was corrupt. It was no longer about spiritual maturity. It was no longer about those who met the biblical qualifications to lead and to pass judgment. Because we know, if you read in the book of John, that Jesus had already been taken to someone else's house. The last high priest's house. And that last high priest just happened to be Caiaphas' father-in-law. He had married the boss's daughter and got the boss's job. And so what we know from the Sanhedrin in, it was the most important families, it was the most prestigious families, it was the who's who's of Israel. And so this is not made up of spiritual people, it is made up of important people in the world's eyes. It would have been like many churches. You're a doctor, you're a lawyer, you're a banker, you ought to be a deacon. You give the most money, you ought to do this, you ought to do that. And so when we see these men, they are not making spiritual decisions. And tonight I want to encourage you because if church becomes something that is ran like that, based on personal accolades or bank accounts or job titles, you will watch a church that becomes very sophisticated, but it will not be spiritual. It will not be spirit-led, it will be socially title-led. And so tonight as a church, we must always reject that people deserve a promotion based on what they've done in the secular world or what they've done in the financial world. We are looking for people who are filled with spirit. Spirit Spirit-led people. And so what we see here is this group of the who's who's were already assembled. They were already preparing to try Jesus when he was arrested. The same people who hated him were going to pass judgment on him. The same people that went to arrest him, some of them would have been in the crowd. What we see here though is it's not just made up of people who hated Jesus, but in verse 58 we see Peter. The same bold Peter who had just cut a man's ear off, who had told Jesus, I'll follow you anywhere. I won't deny you. I won't betray you. If everybody else scatters, Lord, I won't. But yet when Jesus is taken into the Sanhedrin, look where Peter finds himself. Peter followed him at a distance to the high priest's courtyard. And when he went in and sat with the servants to see the end. Now whose servants were these? They were the servants of the Sanhedrin. They would have been the servants who would have cared for these men's physical needs while they were in session. Some of them might even been the guards that went to arrest Jesus. And so here Peter finds himself sitting with the servants of Satan. Not bold enough to walk up with Jesus and said, if he's on trial, I'm on trial. If he's guilty, I'm guilty. 
Where he goes, I go. You see, at this point, I would have been wishing for a Hushai, not a Peter. Right? He told David, I'll go with you. Where you go, I go. What you suffer through, I suffer through. Where we hide in the wilderness, I'll hide with you. But not Peter. Peter stays just close enough to see Jesus, but not close enough to do anything with Jesus. Tonight, I want to say this. There are many people, even on these chairs tonight, who would fit into that category. Yeah, church is great. I don't mind coming to church. I don't mind Jake screaming at me for 40 minutes. I can put up with that. But don't ask me to do anything through the week. I've got a life. I've got things going on. I've got so much that I have to accomplish for the world that I can't totally sell out for Jesus. And what we see is Peter is close enough to see him, but not close enough to serve him. And tonight I want to challenge you, believer, what are you doing with Jesus? Tonight, do you truly have your heart and life sold out to Him? I'm not talking about church attendance. I'm not talking about Sunday school. But when you leave here today, do you really believe, I am living for Jesus. I am serving Him. I am following Him. I want Him to use me. I want Him to use me to make a difference in the people I work with, in the people I live with, in the people I come into contact with. Yes, I know that we live in a world that hates God and the things of God, but Lord, help me to be a light. Lord, Lord, help me to be salt that seasons. Lord, I, I want to be used for Your glory. We see here in verse 59, but now the chief priests and the elders and all the council sought false testimony against to put Jesus to death. They had literally went out and rounded up people who would lie. You've seen it in trials. Some of you were old enough to remember Watergate. I wasn't even born anywhere close to that. And you saw people who had lied to protect a president. You've seen people lie to convict a president. We've seen it in our society and other societies. It's called perjury. Self-incrimination. We've, we've seen lying under oath. And what happens is these men wanted that. Yet the Old Testament said, heed not a false witness. The Bible tells us over and over again in the book of Leviticus and Psalms and Proverbs, over and over again, not to trust a false witness, to trust a liar. But these men, the spiritual leaders, the elite of the elite, these are the men who, when Jesus would have been in the temple, they would have been praying the loudest prayers. They would have had the fanciest religious clothes on. They would have had all the beads and the, all the ex external things that Jesus would have looked at and said, you all are like whitewashed tombs. You look good on the outside, but you are dead on the inside. These same men who were sitting in all of His healing ministry and all of His miracles watching from the back, and then challenging Him, and questioning Him, and scheming against Him. These men all now have Jesus on trial. But tonight I want you to hear something. Jesus might have let them think they were in charge, and that He was on trial with them. But friends, I want you to know that any time you deal with Jesus, you and I are on trial. One of these days, whether it was when they died and stood before Him or on the day of the great white throne judgment, everything these men said about Him 
they're going to hear again. Their words will condemn them. You see, Jesus knows your heart. And He knows my heart. And when we try to view our life that Jesus is on trial, He is not. And so tonight, I really want you to know this and to see this, that these men had a purpose in mind. But what they did not realize is they were condemning themselves. But it says there, but the last two false witnesses came forward and said, this fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. Jesus made this statement multiple different times, but this specific time, and what most scholars think they are referencing it to, is usually used when Jesus was with the twelve. And the question is, how would this two witnesses know what Jesus said, something intimately and privately, with the twelve? They'd heard it from Judas. Judas didn't just betray Jesus. He shared everything with them they would need. And he twisted it. And he turned it. And so they finally have something that Jesus has actually said. You see, I want you to see the hearts of all these people. Whether it's Peter following Jesus half-heartedly. Whether it's the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the high priest and the scribes who hated Him whether it's the false witnesses who didn't really care about Jesus, they just wanted to get paid. Tonight I want you to know something. God wants you to make a choice. God wants you to choose whether you're going to serve Him or reject Him. God wants you to know tonight whether you were saved or whether you were lost. You might convince yourself that you can straddle the fence both ways. You can convince yourself that Christianity is culturally acceptable because we're still here in the Bible Belt. We're still pretty insulated from many of the things that go on in the world. But friends, Jesus told the church in Revelation chapter 3, and the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things says the Amen, the Father and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. So then because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. You see, this church is in a unique position. I believe God has raised us up, not for ourselves, not for your glory, not for my glory, not for recognition in the community, but I believe He wants us to pick a side. I believe He wants us to show other churches, other pastors, other deacons, other Sunday school teachers that they are not alone to stand for the Word of God. I had a lady tell me one time, she goes, Pastor, I love listening to you on Facebook, but if I preached like you, I wouldn't put it on Facebook. And I went, well, that's not the meanest thing that someone's ever said to me. And she goes, no, 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 I don't mean that. She goes, you talk about things that I've never heard in church. Ever. And she goes, I literally will have people talk about you preaching things that they've never heard in church before. and They don't like it. They don't like it at all. I said, well, it don't make a difference. A lot of the people that come don't like it at all. But she goes, I think I would close that off. And friends, you need to know something. God is looking for people who will choose a side. Choose this day who you will serve. 
He's looking for parents and families and couples who will say, I don't care what the world says about my children. I'm going to raise them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. I don't care what the world says about what a marriage is going to look like. I'm going to love my wife like Christ loves the church. And I'm going to submit and honor my husband like the Word says. You see, God is looking for people to make a choice. Tonight are you Peter sitting on the outskirts? Tonight are you the Pharisees and the Sadducees who have got everything figured out from a secular sense and just do religion on the side? Tonight are you just here because you're hoping to get something from God? Or tonight do you genuinely hate Him? And no one else knows it. Second thing I want to show you from this passage of Scripture tonight is that Jesus testifies to the truth. In verse 62 it says, And the high priest arose and said to him, Do you answer nothing? What is it these men testify against you? But Jesus kept silent. And the high priest answered and said to him, I put you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, It is as you said. Nevertheless, I say to you, Hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. You see, Jesus remains silent like the Bible says. But He asks him this specific question, Are you the Christ? Jesus says, yeah. But, you might think you're winning now. You might see me now as the suffering servant. But buddy, this ain't just who I am. I will be sitting at the right hand of the Father. One of these days, I'm coming back with the armies of heaven. You might think the high priest means something today, but I'm the real high priest. I'm the only one who can take away the sins of the world. I'm the only one who can be that sacrifice that you're all playing around with, that you're all mocking. I am Him and I'm telling you, whatever power you think you have, it ain't nothing. And friends, we have to return to that because what looks like Jesus at His most helpless, Jesus at His most vulnerable, Jesus as low as He can go before the cross, He says, I'm not worried. I'm not worried. Why? Because I am who you said I am. And I will rule just like the Bible says I will rule. And I will do what only I can do. That's why the Bible says everything was made by Him and for Him and through Him. Everything exists to glorify Jesus. And friends, we must return to this simple premise that Jesus is everything. Jesus is the only thing. We are living in a culture that has crammed down acceptance into your children and my children so hard that we do not realize, I can promise you, if you were to interview kids and ask them how many ways are there to get to heaven, you would be sickened by it. You would be sickened because what Jesus says is, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh to the Father except through me. But friends, I promise you, you go to work and you tell that 
Hindu that you work with, that Muslim that you work with, the atheist that you work with, the Satanist that you work with, the, the whatever else there is out there, I don't even know. It says, I'm the only one going to heaven unless you repent. There's a good chance you'll get fired. You go to work and you tell that person that doesn't know which bathroom to use that they can't use that bathroom, they will fire you, not the fruit. West Frankfurt, let a teacher go. Look, he says, it's not a good idea for girls to be in a boy's locker room. Friends, I am telling you, God's people must speak the truth and know that at any point, if Jesus chooses to step in and intervene, we win. And when He finally says enough is enough and I'm not going to take it anymore, I'm not going to put it up with anymore, or even if He allows us to suffer, He will be with us, we must have the confidence that Jesus had here that says you might think you're in charge, but you're not. Friends, that's why the Bible tells us to be anxious for... I'm deaf. I don't, Bobby, I know you and Gary can't hear either. But I could have swore it says be anxious for... I want you to know that I don't think we live that way. I think we live with fear of people, what they're going to say about us. As a pastor, I struggle with the fear of... Well, that family didn't like that sermon. They're probably going to leave or they, they might not like this or there's another email or another text message and God just has to remind me sometimes, suck it up, buttercup. Do what I've asked you to do and remember that I am in charge. That's why the Bible says in Psalms 110 verse 1 what Jesus was quoting for, the Lord said to my Lord, the Father said to the Son, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Now, I don't know about you, but the last three words of that are probably my favorite. Because he's not just going to sit there and be like, oh, I tell you what, I just can't believe that's going on. You know, when I think about me sitting, I don't get much done, all right? I'm like most of you, I sit in my chair and I go to sleep, or I sit in my chair and do nothing. But when Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father, it's not just for leisure. It's to rule. It's to reign. It's to command the multitude of angels. It's to command all of the power and authority that He has. And it's not just for our good. It's not just to bless you. It's not just to bless me, and I'm glad that it does. But friends, I'm thankful that God's gracious and merciful. I'm thankful that God's long-suffering, but we must remember that there is going to come a day when the long-suffering and the mercy and the grace of God for lost people ends. That's why we've been talking about trips to Mexico, trips to Honduras, trips to Asia, trips to migrant workers, why we take up uh, offerings for missions because the statistics show us that 170,000 lost people die every single day and go from this world into eternal damnation. Friends, you have to believe what the Bible says that there is a place called heaven and there is a place called hell. And God has made a way, I believe, for all people who want to be saved to be saved. 
I believe that. I believe the Bible teaches it. And if you don't like it, you just have to get over it. But I also believe that when you die apart from Jesus Christ, the Bible says, depart from me, for I never knew you. But Jesus uses His power and authority to make His enemies His footstool. Now, I like footstools. Never really thought about that much as a kid. But now that uh, I've gotten a little heavier, not a lot heavier, a little heavier, someone recently told me, they said, how are you? And I said, I'm a little bit heavy. Someone in my family said, Jake, I don't think you ought to use a little bit heavy anymore. I don't think little is an accurate description of how heavy you have gotten. I won't tell you who that is, but anyway. But a footstool is wonderful because you get your feet up and it's not so much stress on your belly and your back. It's wonderful to have your feet up a little bit. And you're just like, oh, this, this is it. But friends, that's not the idea when it's Jesus. When the Bible uses this, this means that the enemies are under Him. They are unable to do anything to them. They have been defeated and destroyed and conquered. And that's the King that we worship. And while He's on trial... While he's getting ready to be beaten and spit upon and mocked, that's what he chooses to make reference to. The fact that I know how this ends. And friends, the greatest piece of advice I can give you to as a believer is this. Read the back of the book because we win. We win. While I know it doesn't seem like it sometimes, we win. Third and final thing tonight, and I'll close. Jesus is either your Savior or your stumbling block. He's either your Savior or your stumbling block. In verses 65, going verse by verse, Then the high priest tore his clothes, saying, He has spoken blasphemy. What further need do we have to witness? Look now, you have heard his blasphemy. What do you think? They answered and said, He is deserving of death. Then they spat in His face and beat Him. Others struck Him with the palms of their hand, saying, Prophesy to us, Christ, who is the one who struck you. You see, the Old Testament said it was not appropriate for the high priest to tear his clothes other than in extreme moments of blasphemy. But yet what we see is just because you are outwardly trying to convince people that you are righteous doesn't mean that you are. Just because you dress the part doesn't mean you are. Just because you can come in here and you can talk like a Christian and you can make people feel like they're wonderful or you can sing the songs or or you can sit in class and talk about what regeneration is and justification and all those big long words that little kids are like, I don't know what that means. You can say all of it. You can have the right titles. Friends, none of it means your heart is right with God. This man did something that outwardly is the most beautiful picture of humility. What he was doing is he was removing his clothes, giving this sign that, God, I have nothing. And what I want is for you to intervene. God, I don't want you to hold this blasphemy against me. Lord, I don't want to be associated with this. God, this is not how we feel. This is what this wicked man feels. But deep down, we know the end that it was all fake. 
I liken it to that person that knows how to turn on the waterworks at church. Oh, they know the right time to be emotional. They know the right time to make the big scene. We, none of you, none of you, not, not any of you. Everybody talks about, aren't they just such a wonderful believer? Aren't they just such a wonderful gift to God and a gift to the church? And I hope they say that about you. They don't usually say that about me, all right? But that's what he does here. But deep down, we know that he's already rejected Jesus. He's already made the decision that he is going to deny Jesus. And I find it interesting because when we look at verse 69, which we're not tonight, and they begin to ask Peter, do you know him? Do you know him? Do you know him? Do you know what's going on when they're asking him that? They're beating Jesus. They're spitting on Jesus. You see, these headings don't, aren't there by the writers, they're by someone else. As they're in there beating up on his Lord, some little girl says, weren't you with him? Peter says, not me. And we really give Peter a hard time, but let's just be honest. 71 to 1. The number of the men in the Sanhedrin. Then if you add the servants of the Sanhedrin, let's just say there is one for every man. There's 150. And they're mocking and beating and humiliating the Lord. And you stand there by theirself and someone says, you want some of that? I'm probably saying, I don't, want no, I don't know that man. But friends, those men had made that choice. I asked myself this question. I wonder if Nicodemus was in on that. In chapter 7, we know that... In chapter 3, we know that he's interested in the Lord. We know that he eventually does come to the Lord. But where's he at in all this? See, tonight my great challenge to you is that while they were beating Jesus, he was extending mercy to them. While they were mocking him, humiliating him, he was extending grace to them and mercy. Why? Because what they deserved was the wrath of God. What they deserved was for Him to call down ten thousands of angels to wipe these jokers off the map, but He didn't. He literally turned the other cheek. Why is this? Because Jesus knew how it ended. See, Jesus knew that if they didn't beat Him and mock Him and humiliate Him, then He wouldn't go to the the Roman government. And if he didn't go to the Roman government, he wouldn't be sentenced to death. And if he wasn't sentenced to death, he would not have died for the sins of the world. And if he did not die for the sins of the world, then the resurrection couldn't have happened. And if the resurrection didn't happen, this guy would be in hell. So would you. And so I always heard that song when Jesus was on the cross. I was on his mind. But I believe it was even more than that. I believe it would have been here. The cross will change everything. As they struck Him, the resurrection is going to change everything. While they were mocking Him and cursing Him, the cross is going to change everything. These same men who hate me are opening the door for those who are going to love me. Matthew, the 21st church, Chapter says it like this as I close. 
Jesus said to them, Have you never read the Scriptures? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. The Lord allowed this to happen for you and me. The Lord orchestrated this that I could be saved. And look what it says, and it is marvelous in our eyes. I don't think I would describe what's going on in chapter 26 as marvelous for Jesus. Who is it marvelous for? Us. Us! Us! Because what brokenness and horror and torture He is going through. Therefore I say to you, the kingdom will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. And whoever falls on this stone will be broken, but on whoever it falls, it will grind him to powder. These men are who he's talking about in earlier Matthew. The stone is going to crush you boys. And it's going to go from you to them. And that nation is not a nation in the sense of a country, but it is of a people, the church. And when you and I fall at the feet of Jesus and worship Him and accept Him and trust Him, He says, you will be built on Him. But when you reject Him, when you deny His free gift of salvation, it will be what condemns you. It is not a certain sin that sends you to hell. It is not a mortal sin as the Roman Catholic Church would teach. It is a rejection of Him. That's why I believe that Jesus offers salvation to all people. Because you have to make a choice to reject. You are already condemned. But yet Jesus freely offers you tonight the opportunity to be saved. Tonight I want to challenge you if you're here and you're lost that it is not too late. Tonight if you're here and you're saying, Jake, I'm going through some real difficult times and I, I just really am struggling in my faith. Remember that while he was being beaten, he knew how it would work out. And tonight you might not know what the future holds for you, your marriage, your family, your kids, but I can promise you he does. And the enemies that Satan is trying to bring into your life into your kids' life, you need to remember something. The Lord is over it. and He is over them. And we need to believe that no weapon that Satan or this world forms can overcome the spiritual armor of God. Do you really believe that tonight? Because I believe if you do, it changes everything. It changes everything for you and I. Pray with me as you stand. Father, we thank You for Your Word. Not my words, but Yours. And Lord, tonight I thank You for Jesus and what He went through for us. And Lord, I pray that You would help us as a church to show mercy and grace and passion to a lost and dying world. Lord, if You were able to love the men that beat You, and spit upon You, and nail You to a cross, Lord, help us to love that way. Father, tonight I pray for the lost man, woman, boy, or girl that's in this place. That tonight would be the night they would not just be a church member, 
Lord, but they would truly belong to you. Father, for that person that's here tonight, God, and they're doubting your plan and purposes for their life, that tonight they would come and just say, Lord, I'm going to trust you when I don't see how it works out. Lord, I'm going to get rid of the stuff that's keeping me sidetracked, and God, I'm going to follow you totally. Lord, help us to be that church. Help us to be those people. And Lord, we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.